welcome to British Literature Before 1800, a podcast accompanying the course English 2610 at Utah Valley University. Today we'll be talking about the political intrigue of the early 1700s, satire, Jonathan Swift, Alexander Pope, and why we shouldn't eat babies while running with scissors. Today we're going to be discussing a lot of different topics, but we'll start with some historical context before we dive into discussing works by Jonathan Swift and Alexander Pope. So to start out with, um, our texts are bringing us into the 18th century. We're into the 1700s. And so what's been happening politically at this point does inform what we're going to be reading. There's been a lot of political upheaval in the years leading up to Swift's writing. There has been depositions of kings and queens. There's been the Jacobite rebellions. There's been the interregnum. I mean, there's a huge surge of instability in England, mostly centered on the idea of, are we going to be a Protestant or Catholic nation? And by the 1700s, it's kind of established that there is a really strong anti-Catholic sentiment in England. So in 1698, there is a set of laws called the Penal Laws, which basically restrict the rights of Catholic citizens. They're not allowed to vote. They're not allowed to go to university. They're not allowed to hold public office. These are very real segregational laws that disempower the Catholic citizens. Then in 1701, we also have another big political movement that is going to impact the readings that we're looking at, and that is the act of union between Scotland and England, which basically creates now the United Kingdom. And this political union actually leaves Ireland out. It creates a kind of tiered citizenship within the United Kingdoms, and so it's England, Scotland, Ireland in that kind of order. And Ireland is largely disenfranchised because of this act of union. Um, so we get in the 17, in 1701, we get this enactment and it really does do some disastrous things for, for Ireland where the majority of individuals in Ireland are Catholic. And then they are also disembodied and disenfranchised by the, the 1701 act of union. This is all going to be relevant to the things that we're discussing today, but now we need to shift our attention to satire. So satire as a genre is meant to be something that creates social change by poking fun at something. So that's, you know, looking at the vices and foibles of individuals or institutions and saying, okay, we're going to laugh at you until you change something. And the type of humor that we're going to be looking at, particularly with Jonathan Swift, is called the juvenilian kind of, of satire. And juvenilian satire is particularly scathing. It's really abrasive. Um, it's kind of the, the, the dark side of satire. Um, we also see Alexander Pope engaging in some of the satire, but his is less stinging. His version is a little bit more Horatian satire, which is playful and it kind of is poking at fun at social vices and it's gentle and mild um, and it's kind of more lighthearted. So we're going to see two different forms of satire happening here in our work, but both very, very relevant to political and cultural movements that are happening. So now let's turn our attention to Jonathan Swift. So he was born in 1667 in Dublin to English parents. So he's part of the Anglo-Irish class, um, kind of a weird hybrid creature, essentially. 
He gets his education at Trinity College in Dublin, which is an Anglican-only university, and then he goes over to England to start his career in the church. He has a gift for satire, and for the rest of his career, he basically spends his time writing and critiquing church and politics. While pursuing his career in England, he schmoozes with all the right people, he's in with the court, and he thinks he's going to get this really sweet gig as a bishop in an English church, um, a post that he really, really wants. But instead, at the last minute, he gets what's called the deanship of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, and that came to him in 1713. And it was basically, he felt like this was a massive oversight, someone was taking the mick, he was unamused. Um, But when he comes back to Ireland, he really does start to see the political situation and the daily situation in Ireland in a way that's really revealing. So for instance, he writes a whole series of letters called the Drapier Letters, in which he basically tells the English that we don't want the new coins that you're trying to mint for Ireland because they're not right for us. It doesn't work for us. And he's he's really not holding back. He's fighting for the Irish public. So the English are really, really ticked off and they ultimately decide that they are going to offer a reward of 300 pounds to anybody who can tell the government who's writing this. So to contextualize this, realize that with inflation, we're talking a reward of about $80,000. And pretty much everybody in Dublin knew that it was Jonathan Swift who was writing the Drapier letters. But nobody stepped up to inform on him. Nobody turned him in. So when we get to the point of reading a modest proposal, it's important for us to, first of all, hear the full title of this work. The full title is A Modest Proposal for Preventing the Children of Poor People in Ireland from Being a Burden to Their Parents or Country and for Making Them Beneficial to the Public. And like I said before, this is the uh, juvenilian kind of satire, and it is dark stuff. So he starts out by really accurately reflecting on the condition of the poor and particularly of, of women and children um, in Dublin, particularly, and in Ireland. So as the Dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral, he is an Anglican um, or Church of England, Church of Ireland uh, leader, but he is also observing that this is a situation that most directly impacts the uh, Catholic community in Ireland because that is the, the main demographic, especially amongst the poor. So after he depicts these horrible living conditions, he then flips the script and gives us the proposal, which is to turn children of the poor into a food source for the rest of Ireland. What he's doing here is also terrifying in the way that he basically lays out a very logical proposal if you can turn off your humanity. Um, He gives cost benefits. He talks very pragmatically about trade industries. He's very, very methodical about laying out this argument in a way that appeals to the logic and rhetoric of the day. It's bone-chilling stuff. His first major argument is that the perks of eating the poor babies is that it's going to really drastically reduce the number of papists in Ireland. You know, we don't we don't want them. We just want uh, we just want Protestant babies from here on out. Secondly, um, he's saying, oh, you know, we, the, the poor are always complaining that they don't have anything of their own in which they can make money. Well, now they have something valuable of their own and they don't need to be worried about crappy landlords anymore. Hooray. 
His third point is basically a monetary one. So if he's he's giving some kind of computations here, and he says, well, basically, um, the nation's stock will rise by thousands and thousands of pounds per annum if we used to profit on this new dish, because we can actually import and export as well. He then makes the point that this is a great thing for women because now their bodies are something that they don't have to sell on the street, but they can sell its product um, and gain financial independence. His fifth point is that it is going to become such a delicacy that it's actually going to create a spike in tourism and um, the, the, the hospitality industry is going to be booming after this. And his sixth point is that it's going to create a kind of flurry for people to get married. People are going to be really excited to get married after this because then they can procreate and make a lot of money. And finally, at the end of his piece, he, he creates another satirical moment in which he uses what's called paralipsis. Um, it's another form of satire where basically he brings something up by saying that we shouldn't be thinking about it. Um, a little bit, it's kind of meta. Um, so here he says basically at the end that you know, here are things that we shouldn't be thinking about doing. And then he proposes a list of at least six or seven real options for fixing poverty in Dublin, like fixing issues with landlord and tenant rights, um, working on promoting manufacturing, um, lots of different things that are legitimate answers. But he's like, no, 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 let's not talk about those. Those aren't, those aren't legitimate options. Let's not do that. So when he wrote this, he was kind of hoping that people would feel a lot of righteous indignation and make a change based on what he had written. But it seems like most people received it more of like, oh, that cheeky Jonathan Swift at it again. Um, And they largely just thought it was a think piece rather than a really scathing and insightful piece. Um, So think about that when you're reading this, whether this is something that you could think of as just humorous or if you feel some righteous indignity here, what, how would you have reacted to it at the time? So now it's time to turn our attention to Alexander Pope. Now, Pope and Jonathan Swift were actually really good friends for the majority of their life. Um, Pope was born and raised as a Roman Catholic. Now, because he was Roman Catholic, he was denied a lot of opportunities. He wasn't allowed to attend university. He wasn't allowed to vote. He wasn't allowed to hold public office. Um, And as a result of that, he really had to spend a lot of time in perfecting and creating his own intellectual world. Um, but because he didn't have all of these other you know, professional opportunities open to him, he actually was one of the first British uh, writers to actually make an entire lucrative career from publishing his own works. So we talked last week about Afra Ben being a successful writer um, and supporting herself on her writing. It wasn't very affluent, whereas Pope had enough money that by the end of his life, he was actually living in a retirement situation that was pretty, pretty sweet. So Pope actually wrote a lot of materials that were very, very influential and popular in his day. So he did a really popular translation of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, Um, He also wrote really beautifully and powerfully about the essay, in in his essay on man, about kind of the condition of the human soul. Um, He wrote beautifully and eloquently about so many things. I feel like I'm doing a little bit of a disservice to him because we are going to be focusing on one of his lighter works. He really was quite popular and his and his works are things like that we quote still today. So when we say things like hope springs eternal, that's coming from Alexander Pope. Um, but we're going to be focusing on his his work, The Rape of the Lock. 
Now, the rape of the lock is actually based on an actual event that happened between two prominent Catholic families. So a man named Lord Peter um, cut off a lock of hair of a lady farmer without her permission, and it became this big scandal amongst the families that, that he kind of violated her hair this way and her person. And so Pope writes this largely to make this more of a lighthearted thing, something that we can laugh about. This poem is one of the most perfect mock epic poems in the English language. So as a mock epic, it is going to take elements of epic poems and stories and incorporate them in a way that kind of satirizes the smallness of what's actually happening. So even though this is happening in a drawing room, it's going to have the feel of a larger battlefield. The battle of the sexes is essentially what's going on here yet again, where we have the the men and the women are flirting, but it takes on this kind of militaristic vent. Um, the objects in the room are no longer just harmless brocades and desks and pins and diamonds. They become part of the weaponry and armor of the individuals. Um, and there's a lot of things that we should be picking up on from epics that we've already read, like Beowulf and the Toyn, um, as well as ones that we haven't read for this course, like the Iliad and the Odyssey. And so you got to be paying attention to ways that he is making these small, insignificant details feel epic, because that's the whole point of his satire. He's creating a world that's basically constantly in motion, and it sparkles and glitters, and it's light and beautiful. Um, but at the same time, Pope is seeming to to laugh at this world of, of triviality, irrational behavior, upper-class women, feminized men, um, and the idea that, that by by making this so light and bright and sparkling and overblown, he's also pointing out that there is kind of a grimmer, darker world that, that these individuals are completely oblivious to. So as we start to think about adaptations of this, it's important to kind of think about the ways that satire actually functions in our contemporary society. So when Pope and Swift were doing this, they were trying to attack the fripperies of the everyday elite and at the same time tackle real issues like poverty and hunger. So what are some ways that we are seeing satire used in our contemporary culture? Um, why is it that we're drawn to political satire like um, John Stewart or Trevor Noah and those kinds of commentaries? What kind of sat what does satire try to functionally do in our society today? And what are some ways that we can see things like the modest proposal being adapted today? I mean, it still shows up. It's still a relevant reference point. And why are things like the rape of the lock, something that that mock epic, something that we still hold on to? I think by asking us where satire still fits in our day, particularly in terms of social and political commentary, there's a lot of material here for adaptation. I mean, what other way is there to talk about politics and society but to examine them through the lens of eating babies while running with scissors? Thanks for listening to the podcast this week. I look forward to our discussions later on. Join me next week when we read The Rivals by Richard Brinsley Sheridan, full of stage Irishmen, malapropisms, and duels with imaginary people.